I invite you now to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray together. Father, we've just sung a wonderful song asking you to speak to us. Father, would you do that? By your word, open it to us that we might behold wonderful things out of your scriptures. Show us, Lord, the truth and let our lives be molded by that same truth. Lord, I would ask you that our our lives would not be uh, indifferent to the truth of your word, we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we might know what your will is, and by your Spirit we'd live in accordance with that will. Oh, we ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, a wonderful book uh, called The Last of the Doughboys, written by, written by Richard Rubin, and in that book, Uh, Before the last of the American soldiers from World War II died, he went around trying to interview each one. Most of them were in their hundreds. And he introduces his book by explaining to us the contrast from the world that those soldiers grew up in to the world that we live in now. He writes, quote, Before the new age and the new frontier and the new deal, before Roy Rogers and John Wayne and Tom Mix, before Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse and Felix the Cat, before the TVA and the TV and radio and the radio flyer, before the Grapes of Wrath and Gone with the Wind and the Jazz Singer, before the CIA and the FBI and the WPA, before airlines and airmail and air conditioning, before LBJ and JFK and FDR, before the Space Shuttle and Sputnik and the Hindenburg and the Spirit of St. Louis, and before the Greed Decade and the Me Decade and the Summer of Love and the Great Depression and Prohibition, before yuppies and hippies and okies and flappers, before Saigon and Inchin and Nuremberg and Pearl Harbor and Weimar, before Ho and Mao and Chung, 
before MP3s and CDs and LPs, before Martin Luther King and Thurgood Marshall and Jackie Robinson, before the pill and Pampers and penicillin, before GI surgery and GI Joe and the GI Bill, before AFDC and HUD and welfare and Medicare and Social Security, before superglue and titanium and lucite, before the Sears Tower and the Twin Towers and the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building, before the in-crowd and the A-train and the lost generation, before the Blue Angels and Rhythm and Blues and Rhapsody and Blue, before Tupperware and the refrigerator and, auto- and the automatic transmission and the aerosol can and the Band-Aid and nylon and the ballpoint pen and sliced bread, before the Iraq War and the Gulf War and the Cold War and the Vietnam War and the Korean War and the Second World War, there was World War I, the Great War, the war to end all wars. That introduction captures something of the massive change that can happen in a hundred years. It's been a little bit of change in our world in a century, and yet there's a continuity as well. This was just a few years ago that he wrote that book as he tried to capture the last history of those soldiers. And they lived in the time of the internet in the ballpoint pen, but they also lived in a time before the internet in the ballpoint pen. So it feels like much has changed, and yet there's still a connection. We discussed at a business meeting just a few days ago that there's been a little bit of change in our church over the past couple of years. And we believe that this is God's work, and it's God's change that he's brought. It's not man-made change, we hope and pray. Even though there's some change, we hope that there's some continuity, that there's some connection with all that's happened. Even so, if we only look at the change of a church over a couple of years, that's much too much of a microscopic look at things. It's too much of a short-term perspective. There's a great book title that recounts church history. It's called 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. And it's a book that details church history from the inception of the church to the present day. Things have changed over 2,000 years, much less a few years. We don't wear robes and sandals when we gather together. We take cars instead of walking generally. We take notes with pen and ink or pencils. We have our own personal copy of God's word. That's a relatively new thing within a few hundred years. We have hymnals or projectors. We have pews or chairs. We have air conditioning and heat. We have electric lights and electric stoves and folding tables. We have church libraries and church secretaries. We have phones and tablets and computers and bulletins. We have websites and blogs and audio and video recorded sermons. We have VBS and Sunday school and small groups and discussion guides. We have guitars and pianos and microphones and speakers. And we could go on and on with all the differences between the early church and our church today. You could ask, with all of the differences, what's the same? As our church faces some changes, and there are new faces and old faces, and there's changes in programs and functionality, we wonder what's the same? What needs 
to remain the same. Well, what hasn't changed? We could list a long list, I would hope, but one of the things that hasn't changed is God's Word. God's Word remains the same. Oh, we read it in English. It was written in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and it's been translated for us, but it's the same message, the same content. And if we lose that essential, we lose our bearings as a church. And we turn to this book, God's Word, which is always the same, we find the encouragement for us about what God's church is and does, what is essential versus what is superficial and changes with time. The essential abides, and if it doesn't, then we no longer have the right to refer to ourselves as a church. And so we have to have a grasp of what is essential as a church. And if God allows, over the next few Sundays, we'll spend some time considering what God's Word says about what is essential to the church of Jesus Christ. What is essential to His church? And the enduring reality is that what is essential to the church from 2,000 years ago until now hasn't changed. And if we have the audacity to try to change it, Again, we have no right to call ourselves a church. The books of First and Second Timothy and Titus are great books for this. I'm not sure that we'll spend all of our time in these books, but at least this morning we will. They're called the pastoral epistles. That's termed because they're written to somebody, Timothy or Titus, who's in the responsibility of pastoring a church. And it gives instructions for how to do that. And as it does so, it really lays out a blueprint for what a church is and does. And we'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, primarily verses 14 and 15 today. In this particular text, he addresses the urgency of dealing with church conduct. The urgency of church conduct. Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. There's an urgency to what is happening in these verses. Paul, we're not exactly sure where he's writing this letter from, but it's not where Timothy is, and he has the intention of coming to visit Timothy. He loves Timothy, and he loves the church of Ephesus where Timothy is, and he desires to come there, but he might be delayed, and at least he can't come right away. And so his point is that he is writing these things because it can't wait for him to get there to say them in person, even if it's just a matter of a few days or a few weeks before he arrives there, he has to take the time to write these things down, to get them to the church at Ephesus so that they know how one is to behave in the household of God. Paul is urgent about this matter. When he says he's writing these things so that you would know how one is to behave in the household of God. He's not referring just to some merely external conduct of the church. Although it doesn't exclude what you are to wear and how you are to act in the church, it's something that drives much deeper than that. 
It's the same terminology is used in Ephesians 2, verse 3, when it says that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. The word for lived is the same for conducting ourselves. It's living our lives in that setting of Ephesians, in the conduct, or the conduct according to our flesh. It's kind of the whole manner of our lives. One commentary puts it this way about how to behave in the household of God is that it is not a shallow, moralistic understanding of conduct, not simply certain acts one performs, but more important, one's manner of life as informed by guiding principles. It translates knowledge into practice. Paul wants Timothy to minister a message that changes lives, not that confirms to the complacent in a presumptuous status quo. So this whole book of 1 Timothy, this this is the purpose statement of 1 Timothy. The whole book is written so that they would know how they are to conduct themselves in the household of God. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 3, we begin to see how this is to go. Paul writes in 1.3, I urged you, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. How are you to conduct yourself in the household of God? Well, you're not to tolerate any false doctrine, any contrary gospel, anything that doesn't accord with God's word. He goes on in chapter 1, verses 12 to the end of the chapter to basically give a bit of an autobiography, Paul's autobiography, and to describe that God saves sinners. It's the essence of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. How are you to conduct yourself in the household of God is to recognize that you are a sinner saved by grace through Jesus Christ. In verse 18, Paul entrusts this charge to Timothy in accordance with the prophecies made about him. He says at the end of verse 18 that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Timothy, at least, is to conduct himself by viewing his conduct in the church as a warfare, not against other members in the church, but against the doctrines and the teachings that would threaten other members in the church. And so he is to be vigilant and on guard, holding fast to his faith and to a good conscience as he seeks to protect the church. It goes on in chapter 2 to describe about how men and women are to conduct themselves and how prayers are to be made for all people. The church is to be praying. Men are to lift their hands in holiness before God. Women are to conduct themselves with modesty and self-control in chapter 1, verse 9. They're to have good works. It goes on. In chapter 3, describes overseers and deacons, that is, elders or pastors and deacons, and what they are to be like, what kind of manner of life they are to have. And through the rest of the book, it gives us descriptions about how to treat widows, about how to treat false teaching, about how to press on, about how to handle riches and the rich. And all of these kind of sum up in how to conduct yourself in the household of God. In Timothy, in chapter 4, verse 11, is told by Paul, 
command and teach these things. Paul writes with an urgency to Timothy. I can't wait until he arrives. This needs to be known now because the church is so important. Some come to church with a casual attitude or even a business-like attitude. Some church members, I'm not saying here, but just broadly speaking, believe that being part of the church is just one slice of a whole and healthy life. It's a bit casual look at what the church is. It's one day out of the week or one membership among many. This misses the fact that the church is the bride of Christ and the whole of history is steering towards that consummation in which the church is united with Christ in glory. Not one slice of life among, any, among many is to consume the whole. That's not to say that you need to be here Sunday through Saturday. That's not what the church is. That's a wrong definition of it. But the fact that you belong to the body of Christ influences the whole of our conduct at all times. Some pastors believe that leading the church is a career or a profession. You go home at the end of the day and you can unplug from it or you can retire from it. Now, you may not go on pastoring all of your days, but it comes at it with a professional outlook. One of uh, my favorite book titles is one by John Piper, written to pastors. He says, brothers, we are not professionals. You come to the church thinking of it as almost a business or a career. You mistake what the church is. It's a scary thing to think that you're an expert in the church or that you're a professional of church business, that you've seen it a thousand times and you know how everything should go. That's an improper analogy for how you're to lead or be a part of the church because being a part of the church or leading the church is to actually feel a bit of desperation all the time to realize that this is serious business, that there is a war raging and that there's an enemy out to consume souls. And so you're more like a commander, always on guard, not thinking that you're some professional soldier that's seen it all, but that you're constantly vigilant that there is always danger lurking around the corner, and if you feel lulled into confidence, that's just the time that a guerrilla attack will come upon you. So to consider yourself some sort of professional churchman is an entirely inappropriate consideration for how to conduct yourself in the church. Now there's a difference between being casual and being trusting, being indifferent and being patient, being careless and being wise, being vigilant versus being frantic, being absent-minded versus being thoughtful. We don't have to stir ourselves up into a frenzy as much as we don't have to be blasé about things of the church. But we take the seriousness of this, that this is urgent matter about what the church does. There are matters to be attended to. Now, really, the heart of this is why church matters are so urgent. Why are church matters so urgent? Let me put it succinctly. Church matters are urgent 
because of what the church is. Paul says that he's writing these things so that you may know how to conduct yourself. And then look at what he says in three different ways. How one is to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The urgency of matters increases with the seriousness of the responsibility of the role. You might cordially listen to a private, but when a general walks into the room and intends to speak with you, you are going to give your full attention. Paul lays out for us three descriptions of what the church is so that we would have an understanding of how seriousness it is that we are a part of it. And as he does this, I want you to keep in mind that these descriptors of the church describe for us what is essential about a church. And as you understand what is essential about a church, you begin to understand then what is superficial about a church, what things can change and not change, and then what things cannot change. What things cannot be manipulated. We'll spend this week just looking at the first two descriptions, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll consider the third. The first is that the church is the household of God. The church is the household of God. So important to understand that this building, this structure, is not the house of God. This building of bricks and wood is not the house of God. It could be so, I guess you could say, in the sense that he owns everything. And so it belongs to him. But that's not what Paul is referring to when he says the household of God. The house of God in Scripture is an interesting study. If you turn back with me to Genesis chapter 28, we see this term. Genesis 28, verse 10, finds us with uh, Jacob, who is leaving the land of Canaan because he ripped off his brother. And he's on his way out of the land. And as he's on his way out, he stops at a place called Bethel. And you know the story, most likely, if you've been to Sunday school, He goes to sleep there. He places a stone under his head, and he has a dream of this ladder that he sees reaches up into heaven, basically a staircase, and it has angels ascending and descending on it. And in verse 15, God promises to to Jacob, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. It was the presence of God in that place that marked it as the house of God. 
Jacob was sleeping out under the stars. He was using a stone as his pillows, as his pillow. It wasn't a building. It was just an open air place where God met with Jacob. And Jacob describes it as the house of God. Why? Because it was the very presence of God there. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 20, You find David going to the tabernacle. David has just committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's been rebuked for that. And now the child that was conceived between him and Bathsheba has died. And when he's told that in 2 Samuel 12, verse 20, He says, Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he then went to his own house. In that case, David is going to a physical location. It was the tabernacle. And as he goes there, he goes with the intention of worshipping. Because he recognizes that God in his sovereignty has designated a particular spot at that time in history where he was going to be revealing himself. And that was the place where David went and he goes there to worship because he recognizes a connection between the presence of God and the need to worship God. In Ezra chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, the exiles have returned to the land And they have finished building the temple. This is the second temple after the first one has been destroyed. In in Ezra chapter 6, verse 16, it says, And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Again, in this case, the house of God is a physical place, and it is again a place where worship is conducted, where people meet and gather and offer sacrifices to God. As we fast forward, that temple has been destroyed. You go to Hebrews, chapter 3. You wonder what is and where is the house of God? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. In this case, he's referring to the people of Israel. And it describes it as God's house. Again, the place where God is going to make himself known and the people to whom he makes himself known. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Moses was involved with God's house as a servant, 
Jesus is involved in God's house as a son, but now it's referring clearly not to a house that's made of brick and stone, but a house that is made of people. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. says to us, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It says there that we are living stones, being built together as a spiritual house. Whereas 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. So when Paul writes to Timothy, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one is to conduct himself in the household of God. We have to understand the significance of this is referring not to a structure but to a people among whom God displays his presence and receives his worship. In chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, verse 5, referring to elders, sorry, chapter 3, verse 4, it refers to elders, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. That's referring to the people in an elder's home. In verse 5, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? It's referring to the people. The people in an elder's household is now compared to the people of God's church. That is the household of God. The household of God are people God is responsible for and the people responsible to him. The household of God is the church of God. It's God's house. It's God's people. It's the place where he displays his presence. You could ask, is this exclusive? That's a big question because it asks, is this the only place where you would find the presence of God? Now, in one sense, God is everywhere. In another sense, the heavens declare the glory of God, but the church is a particular place where God displays himself in a particular way. There's something revealed specially in the church that's not revealed elsewhere. In the Old Testament, when God appeared directly to Jacob, or David went to a specific place, it was a physical location. Now, the place where God reveals himself is not a particular place, but a particular people. 
The church is a web of people connected by a common faith in Jesus Christ, a common salvation, a common teaching. And this revelation of God in and among his people and through his people, of a people that he pours out his favor on and shows his grace to, is not found in every relationship of people. If you just think of other people, other groups that are kind of connected by some commonality, you have to recognize the distinctiveness of the people of God in the church. Sports fans held together by some sports team that they love together, or art gallery patrons that all love a particular artist, or alumni from a particular high school that have a common set of teachers and education, they're not the church. They're not the place that God reveals himself to the world now. The church is so distinctive because it is God's household. It is God's people, the people who represent God to the world. In your own household, if you have a household, and you have multiple people living in your home, and you're all held together by some sort of common family name, common priorities, and one person in your household goes off the rails, you recognize that there is a connection between that person who goes out And the rest of you, you are all connected. This is why Paul is saying it is so important that we know how one is to conduct ourselves in the household of God because we're all connected now by the shared name of Jesus Christ with God our Father and we're all called children of God. And as we represent God to the world, we need to know how we conduct ourselves speaks specifically to how the world sees God. With God's household, how much maligning comes upon his household because we misrepresent him? We say we belong to him, and then we live nothing like he calls us to live. We misrepresent God to the world. You see, the church is the household of God, is the place where God displays himself in the conduct of his people to the world. This is why it's so important to behave yourself in the household of God, as the people of God. That's essential. That part of the church can't change because it's the very household of God. And if you start treating it, stop treating it as such, It's no longer God's church. The second description is that the church is the church of the living God. The church of the living God. Did you know that Thailand is home to over 40,000 temples? 40,000 Buddhist temples. There's one that's called Wat Ply Lam. It's completed in 2004, and it has lots of statues, very colorful, gold-painted statues all over the place, a giant Buddha. The main statue in that place is of this Buddhist goddess of compassion and mercy called Guan Yin. The statue has 18 arms, 
And those 18 arms are there to show her ability to help many people in need at once. But if you look at that statue, those arms never move. It just sits there. The statue needs to be maintained by the caretakers, refreshed with paint, bird droppings washed off of it, food brought to it that it never eats, candles lit that it never sees, service given that it never rewards, prayers that it never answers. Our God forbid the making of images so that we wouldn't look at some statue and think, is that it? Is that all that God is? It just sits there and does nothing. When our God chose to reveal himself to this world, he sent his own son to take on flesh who had arms that could move and legs that could walk and a mouth that could speak and eyes that could see. And when he spoke, he spoke words of power. And when he touched, he touched with power. And when he saw, he saw with compassion. And when he listened, he he listened with wisdom. Our God is a living God. Our God is alive. He hears us when he prays. This element of God being alive is revealed to us in the opening chapters of Exodus. When he gives his name and Moses asks, who shall I say sent me? And God said, say, I am who I am has sent you. That statement claims that God exists that he has always been, that there is no beginning to God, that there is no ending to God, that he existed before anything else existed, and nothing can exist apart from him. John chapter 5, verse 26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. God needs nothing. He needs no one. He has life in, in himself, and he exists apart from everything else. We are contingent beings, we can't create ourselves, we can't sustain ourselves. Oh, sure, we eat meals and drink water, but in a moment, if God removed his sustaining hand, we would disintegrate into nothing. And yet God is always alive, always the same, and his sameness is his perfection because he is always perfect. There are no improvements to be made upon him. He is self-existent and perfect in who he is. So when Paul tells us that we are the church of the living God, it shapes our understanding of why these church matters are so urgent. Because we are the only people in the world who are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, who know the living God. Anyone else in this whole world who claims to know God but does not know Jesus Christ knows a fake God, a God who doesn't hear and has no power and never answers and does nothing but sits there as a statue, stone cold and inactive. We are the only people on this planet, not saying only in this room, but only the church of God that is the true church possesses the knowledge of the living God who has life in himself. We, of all people in the world, 
know that he is the living God. We know this because he made us live. Not just physically, but spiritually. John 1, 12 through 13. But who all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Or 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or Romans 6.4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We know that he is the living God because he's given us life. You've been born again if you know Christ. Your life is not what it once was, and the only explanation you can make for that transformation is that God brought light into your life through a knowledge of Jesus Christ. We know he is the living God because he answers our prayers. We know he is the living God because he speaks to us in his word. It says in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. And when we come to his word, we get pricked by it. Not just pricked, we get cut to the core. We taste of his aliveness. This notion that we know the living God is at odds with much of contemporary theology and contemporary culture. Edmund Clowney, in his book, The Church, writes that radical contemporary theologians declare that salvation is not limited to the church, to Christianity, or to Christ. All religions have equal rights, for they hold an equal claim to religious truth. An enlightened Christian world citizen, we are told, will avoid Christian terminology that might offend other religions. He or she will speak of God as he or she, or it. The only God who might take offense at this neutering is the God of the Bible, noted for his exclusive claims. That God, we are told, died long ago with orthodox theology, and the church is his tomb. Brothers and sisters, we are the church of the living God. The world would have the rest of the world think that the church is the place for the tomb of God. There's no living God here. It is so important that we conduct our lives in a way fitting our salvation because we represent to the world that God is alive. And the church of the living God is the only people that will do that in the world. That's essential to what the church is. The people gathered together, made alive by the living God, and now sent out to represent the living God to this world. Church matters are urgent because of what the church is. The church is the household of God, and the church is the church of the living God. So as our church faces some changes. We have to remember that this is God's church. It is his household. 
And we are the church of the living God. We have to keep the essentials right. And these things, the fact that we are his household and the fact that we represent the living God to the world are the things that we share in common from the church of 2,000 years ago. We continue on doing the same things that that early church did as we represent the living God to the world as we are his household. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the church as the pillar of truth, which is so important for us to understand. And may God help us to behave rightly as his church. Let us pray. Father, it's only by grace that we are saved. Through faith, it's not of ourselves. But as you've saved us, you've placed us to be to belong to your people, to your church. And we thank you, Lord, for what a gift it is to be called your household and to be the church of the living God. Help us to conduct our lives in a way that is consistent with what you have called the church to be. And Father, I would ask you that as changes happen in this church, that they would not in any way detract from what you call us to be and call us to do. And Father, if there are any that are in the works that would not please you or not represent you well to this world, may you stop it and keep us from going down that path. Because this is your church. and We have no authority over it. You are our God and we are your people. Lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.